So you are listening to WFMU. My name is Benjamin Walker. This is Too Much Information. If you're a regular listener of the program, you are aware now that uh, the format's changed a bit. The show is now uh, live. And, uh, we're uh, working on the, the uh, technical aspects of that uh, now. But uh, we're doing this live now, which means that uh, we take calls. You can participate on the ACU playlist at WFMU.org, and you can give us a call at 201-209-9368. If you're missing the old version of the show, you can check out my other podcast, which is called The Theory of Everything, all of the regulars, Chris, Peter, Conspiracy Theories, The Mad Adventures, all that is there, and you can find that at toe.prx.org. But I hope you're enjoying this uh, new format as I have to say it's a little more challenging doing the live interviews but I'm really starting to enjoy it especially when I get the chance to talk with someone like today's guest who is Susan Crawford one of the country's leading voices when it comes to media policy and America's technology infrastructure hey Susan are you there Susan are you there yeah, I'm right here. Oh, wonderful. Great. All right. Thanks for joining us today. In her book, Captive Audience, The Telecom Industry and Monopoly Power in the New Gilded Age, Susan Crawford makes the case that our lack of media regulation and public infrastructure pretty much guarantees that America is going to fall behind as the world moves into the future, where companies and consumers require affordable, high-speed connectivity. So, Susan, welcome to WFMU. I'm glad to be here. So, now, I was just in South Korea a few months ago for the first time, and I was working on a story, but I couldn't help but notice the Internet there, people on the subway playing streaming video games. I mean, it was really immediately apparent that this country was wired up very differently than us. And I know you were recently there as well on more of an actual fact-finding trip. I'm, I'm very curious if you could tell us about what they have that we don't have. Well, I'm glad you asked about this. Yeah, I went to South Korea just a couple of months ago to talk to telecom regulators and also the people in their 20s about what their lives are like with these very high connectivity um, networks. So today, if you move into an apartment in Seoul, which is where half the population of South Korea lives, yeah. you have a choice of three or four fiber-to-the-home providers. 100 megabit per second symmetric, that means equal upload and download service. And competition is so fierce that they show up within a day to wire you up. Mm-hmm. And everybody just assumes a reasonably priced, very high capacity connection for about $30 a month. That includes television, everything else. And the availability of fiber throughout Seoul is deep and it runs through the subways, which allows for those streaming video on your handheld device experiences in the subways. Uh-huh. Um, and this was all this has all been a matter of intentional policy by the South Korean government. And by the way, South Korea has announced that they're moving everybody to a gigabit connection, 100 times faster than what Americans have. So uh, we, don't, we don't even have anything like that. No, we don't have anything like that. Uh, we're starting to see some very small 
gigabit installations in America so far uh, mostly driven by Google in Kansas City, and then we'll see that happening in Austin and Provo. But we don't have even the idea, the glimmer of a recognition in our policy yet that uh, we need to make a massive fiber upgrade for every American. And South Korea's already done it. So so uh, what happened? I mean, wh- weren't we supposed to get something like that, too? I remember, you know, hearing, you know, back uh, even in the late 90s that this was supposed to be our future. Well, I would say the first generation of Internet development and optimism and money-making certainly happened in the United States. And all the great apps that uh, were developed online, uh, we used to call them, you know, just things you did online, not apps, mm-hmm. um, <laughs> came from this country because we were the first to introduce uh, a mass market flat rate access point to the Internet. Um, what happened is that other countries have now leapfrogged us and are moving directly into fiber to the home as a matter of their national industrial policy. And we have not made that choice. In fact, quite the contrary. We, about 10 years ago, deregulated this entire market yeah. and said uh, that the magic of the marketplace will bring this upgrade. And it turns out that hasn't happened, and I'm happy to explain why. Yeah, I want, I want to come to back to that, but I want to even go, you know, uh, uh, back you know, a century ago to where, you know, thinking of a technology like the telephone, because it seems that, you know, again, you had a lot of excitement around a new technology, new ways of communicating for businesses and families and citizens. But there was also different philosophical models about how the country should be wired up. Yeah, the telephone, first of all, our telephone system in the United States was the wonder of the world when it was introduced, absolutely the best around the globe. And we had a commitment to make sure that every American got a standard telephone connection. It was just part of the dignity of living in this country. And it would be inexpensive. And if you couldn't afford it, we subsidized those telephone connections. We still do, by the way, for people who can't afford basic telephone service. Mm -hmm. So fast forward, now we've got the introduction of Internet access, which is the substitute for that common network, that general purpose network connecting everybody. And yet we've abandoned all that social construct, that policy that everybody gets it, that it's available to reasonable cost, that it is available in terms in times of emergency and built to very high standards. All of that has gone out the window, and we're sort of looking around trying to figure out what happens next. Yeah, but was you know today you still have people thinking, well, okay, maybe a telephone is something you need. But high-speed internet? Do you need a smartphone? I mean, it still seems that businesses are going to cities and, and balking if there's not the best high-speed uh, access that they can get. But it seems that was there a point when you look at the history of the telephone where we had to overcome saying uh, some resistance to, okay, this might not be a luxury, but actually a necessity? In fact, people made fun of the telephone when it was first introduced as uh, sort of a toy. They couldn't imagine what it was going to be used for. And there was a lot of opposition to it and its intrusion on social life <laughs> when it was first introduced. Uh, and actually, we had to be quite intentional about marketing it to people so that they understood what it could be used for. Um, and it just became our national policy that it was important for everybody to be connected and to communicate. And it creates enormous economic and social and cultural benefits for the country to have that kind of communication system. So now, high-speed Internet access is 
a necessity. It's no longer a luxury, but we are still, for legal purposes, treating it like a luxury. And mm. that's led to deep inequality and worsening inequality in America. We're effectively creating two Americas and uh, making worse the existing inequality. Yeah. Well, you know, uh, we've just been talking to you for a few minutes here, but I hope the audience can hear that you are a very upbeat critic. I don't think I've ever heard someone talk about these problems with such optimism. And I mean, you have a, an insane amount of positive energy to this. But it does seem that there's one idea, one industry talking point that you refuse to accept. You already alluded to it. And that is the idea that market competition is a safeguard for America, something that will guarantee that we'll get the best and fastest service possible. And I'm wondering if you is, can tell us, is there something wrong with this idea, or is it more an issue that we just have a serious monopoly problem on our hands and we're doing it wrong? Well, they're intertwined. So where consolidation is possible, competition is impossible. And what happened is that the cable companies had a much cheaper path to upgrade their systems to high-speed Internet access than the telephone companies. Telephone companies have to dig up their wires uh, the old copper wires, and replace them with fiber in order to compete with cable. And seeing how much less expensive it was for cable, the telephone companies have actually just backed away. Yeah. They're, they're abandoning uh, their wires, and uh, Verizon and Comcast and the other cable companies have actually agreed to work together. So they're all collaborating. And for three of the four quarters of 2012, just 0.02% of new broadband subscriptions were for anybody other than the local cable monopoly. Wow. So, yes, we, we thought back in 2000 that competition would protect Americans, but it turns out that there, we've seen enormous consolidation and market division instead. Can you talk about the, the consolidation, how recent it's been, though? Because even a few years ago, I think that anyone in the audience would remember how many, you know, just options you'd see online for, you know, whether it be you know, new services offered from the telcos, but there were just there just seemed to be a lot of internet service providers out there that you could go to, and now they're yeah. gone. That's right. Just even just ten years ago, there were six thousand independent internet service providers around the country. Uh, they'd all gotten there because of regulatory policy, because they were allowed to connect into the telephone companies' lines, and you could dial into them. So AOL is an early example of that. So fast forward now, we've got basically four giant companies who dominate the market, two on the wireless side, AT&T and Verizon, and two on the wired side, uh, Comcast and Time Warner. There are several smaller players, but the big cable guys never enter each other's territories, and mm. same thing with AT&T and Verizon when it comes to their wired services. So... Um, uh, basically, we've, we're, it's a very quiet, comfortable life for these monopolists, and we're not seeing the fierce competition that we were dreaming of that might protect Americans. Sure, but, I, and, you know, okay, so we have thousands going to four. I mean, that's a clear, you know, there's this <laughs> unarguable, there's a, there's a clear... A I see you see a trend. Yeah, I, I see a trend there, <laughs> there as well. But, I mean, I have to ask this, uh, you know, where, what is the evidence that... There, you know, why is this bad? Uh, you know, just having four companies. I mean, take Comcast. You know, besides the fact that everyone in the country hates their guts, what what evidence do we have that they're they're behaving badly? Well, here's what's happening. Um, they've made their investments in their network around the country. They control their footprints, uh, and so Comcast's territory covers about 50 million uh, American households and 45 percent of the American population. 
And in that footprint, they are effectively the only choice for very high-speed Internet access, anything other over 6 megabits per second. For 85% of the country, your your choice is either Comcast and its footprint or maybe Time Warner and it. And, it. Mm-hmm. and because they never compete with each other, it's just them. So their behavior is the following. They are in harvesting mode. They've made their investments in their network, and now they can just incrementally add on extra fees, you know, increase bundles, just keep yeah. every six months or so raising prices. And because we have nothing to compare ourselves to, we never look beyond our shores, we don't understand that in many other countries you can just assume very high-capacity Internet access for maybe 30 or 40 bucks a month. That's not possible in America. Yeah, and it seems that the the cost is one thing we don't have. But again, you know, thinking of that subway ride that I was riding around in Seoul, I mean, there was someone doing video, like live Skyping with someone mm-hmm. on the subway. <laughs> you know, and I, 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 you know, we're both here in New York, Susan, and you know, you can't even get, you can't even check your a text message on the on the subway. Yeah, in Korea, this is the first time I'd ever had the experience of being laughed at as an American, because. Uh, the South Koreans really treat coming to America as taking a rural, peaceful vacation oh. because connectivity is so poor. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, in New York, um, our subway manager, the MTA, has signed an exclusive 25-year agreement for just wireless service in the stations, not even fiber yeah. in the tunnels and not even wireless in the tunnels. So we're not getting very far right now in America. But I do believe that Americans, like the South Koreans, are impatient. And that yes. once they see what's possible with relatively inexpensive, very high-capacity networks in some parts of America, mayors are going to get jealous and say, we need to have this for our citizens, too, and make sure that those businesses move to our cities. So I do I hang on to optimism. What I'm increasingly concerned about, though, is, is deepening inequality, uh, where you, know, you can be a little town in New Jersey just 50 miles from Comcast territory, and not have adequate phone service, let alone wireless or cable, just be completely off the map because we've dropped the policies that would have required everybody to have a very stable, uh, very high-quality communications connection. Yeah, but aren't you saying, though, that when we look back at the history of the telephone that there were not market forces driving this, though? It was, it was government philosophical ideas that let's wire everybody up. Yeah, well... I think we find over and over again in history that when it comes to these basic networks, if you can think of the communications grid like a street grid. It makes everything else possible. And yet, if you leave it to the market to build a communications grid that's going to cover everybody, they just won't do it because it's not in their interest to yeah. reach the very distant places or uh, reach poor populations. And so even people on the right will always say that, it, that this is a function of government to ensure that everybody has a reasonably priced connection because it creates a giant market for American goods and weaves the country together. Yeah, I, I want to come back to some ideas about how those seemingly contradictory <laughs> ideas can can come together. But I want I want to stick with Comcast for for a little bit because it seems that you know uh, uh, in your book, if there is one company that you are focusing on uh, and, and, de- and, and describing just how vast and how many tentacles there are to this monopoly. It's Comcast. So I'm, I'm curious if we could ta- if you could sort of out- lay out a little more about just how amazing of a... You say they're in harvesting mode right now, but they had yeah. to get here. How, what did they do to get <laughs> here, and how big is this monster? Uh, 
You know, Comcast is a great American company. It starts from nothing, two little systems in Meridian, Mississippi in the mid-60s. And now it's the largest provider of high-speed Internet access in the country. It's also the largest provider of pay TV services. It also is one of our five media conglomerates. It's NBCU as well as Comcast. So they control all kinds of programming and uh, most powerfully a lot of regional sports networks. And with exclusive rights to sports content, they can make life miserable for any rival that might try to show up and build infrastructure in their territory. So you can think of them as something like Standard Oil. They have consolidated their operations to the point where where they operate in their footprint, they dominate. Yes. And they can control the movement of information into people's houses in that footprint with almost no choices. So it's uh, their market cap is over $100 billion at this point. They're bigger than Home Depot. They're bigger than McDonald's. Uh, they're giants. But, you know, from their point of view, you know, you've always heard that argument that they didn't want to be the pipes. You know, who wants to be the dumb pipe? So they kind of set out to make sure they weren't, and they did it, right? Well, at this point, they're getting the best of both worlds. They are, they know that consumers see this as a utility. When you move into an apartment, one of the first things you want to do is sign up for Internet access. And often, Americans want to sign up for the bundle. They want to get paid TV, too. And often, there's only one choice. So... They they are now the pipe for 85% of Americans who want to get high-speed, truly high-speed Internet access. Now, here's the issue. Internet access, or sometimes the FCC uses the word broadband, uh, is defined by the FCC as anything over 3 megabits per second, which could be also a crappy wireless connection. Um, so Comcast says, well, we have lots of competitors. But they're reaching out to go down to very low speeds and bring that into their umbrella of competition. When it comes to truly high speeds, the kinds of things that the rest of the world is focused on, it's just the cable companies. There's a little bit of fiber to the home provided by Verizon, but that's going to reach at most 18 million Americans, and uh-huh. they've been being very carefully selected communities. <laughs> you know, it's funny. Like One of the, the f- complaints you see, just like a, you know, a simple search on the Internet about a company that has uh, uh, a locked you know, a region locked down like Comcast or, or Time Warner is that since that's your only choice, when you show up, you, 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 it becomes immediately apparent that they don't care. They'll show up when they feel like it. Yeah, recently, <laughs> it was astonishing. Recently, in a, in a very well-respected uh, consumer survey, um, ISPs came in at the very bottom of yeah. all industries for, their, for consumer satisfaction. That's good. Yeah, they don't have to. They they don't have to, and and it's just like uh, there's a wonderful old um, Lily Tomlin skit where Al Franken's in the background on Saturday Night Live, Uh and she says, you know, here at the phone company we handle 84 billion calls a year, and so if for no apparent reason your phone goes out of order or maybe you get charged for a call you didn't make, we don't care. (laughs) We don't care. We don't have to. The next time you complain about your phone service, why don't you try using two Dixie cups with a string, she says. <laughs> we don't care. We don't have to. We're the phone company. And so now we've got these local monopolies that are yeah. in this same situation. But the, the difference in the, in the 80s was that there was federal regulatory yeah. authority over them. We don't have that now. Yeah. In fact, they kind of got whacked. But, you know, like, like the, the snake that gets cut into pieces, they just seem to, like, immediately re- reform. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Basically, what happened on the telephone side is that uh, we may have broken up Ma Bell, but what, we, what we've ended up with is Ma Cell. So AT&T and Verizon basically yeah. divide the 
wireless marketplace between them. And then on the Comcast side and the Time Warner side, we sort of thought that cable was for entertainment. We weren't quite sure what it was for, but now it is dominating the yeah, high-speed yeah. internet access market and the pay TV market. Yeah. So you are listening to WFMU. My name is Benjamin Walker. This is Too Much Information, and our guest this hour is Susan Crawford, author of the book Captive Audience, The Telecom Industry and Monopoly Power in the New Gilded Age. And obviously I think talking about something like Comcast is, is something that gets people kind of angry. So if you want to give us a call at 201-209-9368 or you can check in on the Accu playlist that we have at WFMU.org. Susan will be here for uh, this program. Um, but uh, one of the stories that's that's really crucial to your book um, and you know this is a changing story and it seems very difficult Susan to put a book out because the traditional publishing model means that by the time the book hits the shelves things have already changed and this seems especially relevant to your story when you talk about Comcast versus Netflix, which is a big, uh, a big focus in, in this book. I'm wondering if you could tell us that story and how, uh, you know, sort of taking us up to the, when the book comes out, and then I want to talk about some of the, the recent developments. Yeah, I'd say that recent developments are absolutely proving what I wrote about in the mm -hmm. book. So Netflix gave up before a shot was fired. Netflix was forced into what economists would call complementarity. That is, they never ever tried to compete directly with cable's programming, particularly sports and also first-run brand programming. Okay. Uh, they position themselves as uh, not being a competitor to the cable guys, but as a useful adjunct. And you can see in Reed Hastings' most recent letter just a month ago that that's how he's positioning Netflix. Don't worry about us. We're just here to show you how great over-the-top video is. It's almost as if he's asking the cable distributors to make him into a cable channel, that he would, he would be, like HBO, a good addition to the stable. Um, the book focuses a lot on the barriers that Netflix yeah. faced. If it had ever thought about coming a direct competitor to cable, it would have had huge problems because its fate is in the cable distributor's hands. Yeah. Every one of its movies has to pass over the cable distributors pipe into people's homes, and there are all kinds of ways to mess with that um, to make life hell for Netflix. Sure, but I think that not only the over, there's the acquiring, the you know, which I think is is uh, when you look at some of the mergers of the recent years and how you see that playing out in what happened to some of the licensing deals that were not renewed for Netflix. That's right. Well, the, there's sort of a programming distribution complex out there. The very few programmers, these five media conglomerates, and then very few distributors. And it's in all of their interests to keep prices steadily going up and to avoid the risk of having material just floating around online. So Netflix uh, has been very initially disruptive to this complex uh -huh. because they were able to, in, in their early going, sign up some deals for content because no one took them seriously. Uh, and Jeff Bucus had this famous quote that, you know, I'm not going to be bitten, beaten by Netflix. Who are they, the Albanian army? <laughs> uh, he's the CEO of Time Warner. So uh, Netflix has been paying more and more and more and more for programming. Uh, it's reaching more and more subscribers. Uh, but again, it it is a complimentary service. It's not competing head-to-head -head with cable's offering. So, Susan, we have a call. It looks like we have um, Rob from uh, a, a Red Hook local Brooklyn company who's joining us. Hey, Rob, are you there? Hello, Rob? Hmm. Hello, Rob, are you there? 
and uh, we'll see if we can come back and get Rob in a second, but I'm not hearing him. Uh, one second, stand by in that. Um, all right, we'll try to get that in a second, but um, uh, Susan? Yeah, right it, here. Yeah, yeah, it does. Uh, you know, coming back to the, the, the merger, though, that, that is instrumental in this most recent, uh, in what you were just talking about with some of the, the, the cable deal. Can you talk a little bit more about that? That was the really, the big one from, I guess, two years ago? Yeah, in January 2011, the FCC approved a merger between NBCU, which had been part of GE and owns a lot of programming, including a lot of sports, and Comcast. And um, the merger was approved with very mild conditions, which have really not stopped Comcast at all. Mm-hmm. And uh, what this does, in, in, in Comcast's hands, having all this programming, gives it the both the incentive and the ability to make life difficult for anybody who might try to enter a market to compete with them. Because now any new guy building fiber, let's say, in a Comcast territory, has to enter two markets at once. They have to provide the infrastructure, so they have Mm -hmm. to make sure that they're reaching wires in people's houses, and they'd have to get access to programming. And uh, Comcast can make life difficult in terms of pricing pricing programming in, in cahoots with its other brethren. It's you know, it's funny how little of this story is understood by oh, yeah. the average media reporter or the, or the average American, um, because it looks from a distance as if everything's fine. It seems like you have a lot of choices of programming and yeah, yeah. things are moving quickly. But actually, in comparison to other countries, we've got a really stuck situation here, and we're paying extraordinarily high prices. I also think that there's a there's a sense that oh competition is working because when you read about all of these glowing stories profiles on some of the uh, new content deals that Netflix has been doing like say the Arrested Development it makes it seem like oh we shouldn't worry about them they're going to be fine when really it seems to be almost proving your point as you were, as proving what your 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 idea or your thesis about this this battle between the two. Right, that they're not in head-to-head, it's not actually a battle, it's not a head-to-head competition, and they've both been very careful to make that clear. So, people love Netflix, and it's gaining scale, it has more than 20 million uh, subscribers now, Um, Um, but its future really is utterly dependent on how it's treated by these gatekeepers. And so it has to be polite and not get in their face too much. All right, let's see if we can take this call. Rob, are you there? I am. Oh, great. Hey, Rob. How's it going? Thanks for calling in. Going all right. So, all right. so you run a fiber, a local fiber business. We do. Yeah, we're a local ISP based in Red Hook, and um, I, we're not. What's it called? Position. Hello. What is it called? Brooklyn Fiber. Okay. Are you aware of these guys, Susan? No, I'm excited to hear about them. <laughs> well, we're not. We're not in a in a position to really chip away at the, um, I guess, a duopoly that exists where we are, um, which is Red Hook and the surrounding area. But the customers that we do have have true, true um, broadband. You know, we have customers that have anywhere from um, 25, uh, 10, that's 25 down, 10 up connections to we can basically we can do a symmetric 100-100 for people or the Google package, which is, um, you know, a gig if they really need it. Yeah, it's terrific, and I'm sure that your customers are really happy to have that. How did you get the connections you need into, you know, backhaul, reaching the backbone of the internet? How did you do that? Uh, we have we have towers all over, so we're I guess technically we're we're a wisp. Uh, we're not. Yeah, we're we're not. Um, um, it's easy. 
to confuse that for um, for um, uh, uh, I'm sorry, it's, it's easy to confuse that for uh, some sort of wireless. But we are a, a wireless connection into the home. Um, it's not Bluetooth or anything like that, or Wi-Fi um, into the home or the business. Primarily, our, our customers are businesses that need um, a commercial uh, grade connection. So it's like a technological workaround. Uh, it is um, for us the. Um, the connection is fairly simple as long as you're within line of sight of one of our towers and we're growing uh-huh. every day. But if you are within line of sight of one of our towers, we show up and we, we connect to, you know, depending on, on, um, on where your rooftop is or, or your window, we can connect to in anywhere from 20 minutes to an hour. So this is a great story. Uh, so let's say 85% of Americans have just their cable guy for high speeds. And um, about 5%, 6% so far have fiber to the home, provided by Verizon mostly. And then there are growing now local competitors showing up, like this company from Brooklyn, that are doing great things for their customers. The problem is that, uh, as the caller says, this is a business-grade connection, which is really important. Um, But we've got a lot of just people uh, trying to keep up with the 21st century who don't get access to these kinds of services at a reasonable price. Uh, So even though we're talking about the future of education all the time, moving online and assuming that, take Fairfax, Virginia right now. They have, that's a Fios community, Verizon's there with Fios, but the Fairfax Public Schools had to end their experiments that relied on kids having broadband connections at home because too many of them just didn't have it. Yeah, yeah. Well, well. thanks for calling in there, Rob. Um, and we can take more calls at 201-209-9368 uh, if you want to join the conversation. Um, uh, or you can go online at WFMU.org. But it, it seems to me that I didn't understand fully what this, was, wh- what this one was about, um, Susan. But it seems like it's kind of, you know, a limited, or at least it seems like a difficult workaround. Not, well, yes, it, it, it's, yeah, it's expensive. You've got to build it. This is called fixed wireless. So what he's talking about is microwave connections that, as long as we're within line of sight, so no trees, yeah. no buildings getting in the way, you can, uh, and as long as you have access to a tower, and I wanted to ask him how he got access to all those towers, maybe he's building some of his own, um, you can beam that connection right into a business. Yeah. It's a little bit of a kludge, um, but it works for some people, the problem is there are lots of other connections that are uh, even... So his connection from that tower back to the Internet itself, to a local point of presence, is likely still owned by Comcast or mm-hmm. Verizon. And I wonder how much they're charging him. Also, he didn't tell us how much his service costs. So Yeah, maybe he can put that on the AccuPlay, the playlist page, and I'll, I'll, I'll mention that. Yeah. Um, but I want to speak at some of the maybe the, the more well-known uh, attempts to deal with this. I mean, we've all heard of Google Fiber or some of the municipalities. You mentioned a few that are looking at trying to push back. But it seems like this is a, a also an evolving story. And the beginning of the story is not very good. I mean, it seems that some companies like Comcast have actually been able to shut down some of the municipalities' attempts to build uh, alternatives to monopoly yeah, that's services. right. In, in 19 states, there are barriers on the, at the state level. What, what does that mean? Municipalities. It means that the incumbents, AT&T, Verizon, Time Warner, and Comcast, um, uh, not Verizon so much, but the other guys, have certainly marched on state houses and said, don't let cities build these networks or make it difficult for them. 
and in a lot of ways to persuade a state legislator that it would be a bad idea for government, in effect, to be competing with these companies that um, you know employ so many people in their state. And so it has so far been relatively easy to get those laws through. Oof. And in time, Time Warner Territory in North Carolina. Yeah, that's the one. That's the one where there were there are some very exciting municipalities in um, North Carolina that have built their own municipal fiber networks. And Time Warner managed to ram through a bill uh, with the aid of the state legislature that will make it very, very difficult. In fact, I'd say impossible for any other cities in North Carolina to do this. Uh huh. So that's a story. It happens uh, all over the United States. Just recently, we saw a little tick in the other direction in Georgia. Yes. The incumbents there offered a bill that would have made it Im- just impossible for cities to do this for themselves. And city managers and all kinds of people just got together and persuaded the state legislators that that would be a bad idea. So that bill failed. Really? Mm-hmm. Um, okay, but it does seem that when you look at this story, particularly the 19 states that have <laughs> successfully made it impossible to compete, it's hard to stay positive. But again, you seem to, 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 to know something here. That I mean, <laughs> Do you see that we're, this is just not sustainable, these sort of lockdown movements? It, you know what? There's a, going to be a tipping point. When more and more gigabit networks are opening up, let's take Kansas City, for example. Uh, Google has this gigabit network that it's built there and Kansas City is seeing startups move to its town and and everybody in Kansas City is talking about this it's exciting for every level of society and their credit rating has gone up as a city uh-huh. so that's that's just yeah. a positive story and uh, they'll do it again in Austin now I don't want Google to do this for the country because then we'd just be swapping out one monopoly for another but the excitement that it builds and the interest that it builds in getting very high-capacity, relatively inexpensive connectivity to houses is is going to turn yeah. the tide because more and more parts of the country will want to see this for themselves. People should get impatient. I, don't, I think getting angry is the wrong response, but getting impatient right. and saying that America is sinking and we've got to make sure that we stay up in the 21st century you yeah, know, competition is important. Let, let's take another call. We have we have uh, station manager Ken <laughs> calling in. Hey, Ken, are you there? Hello, hello, Ken. Uh oh, I think maybe he went on hold. Uh, hello, hello, hello. Oh, I Did guess his call drop. That often happens. Yeah, I think that happened. We'll have him call back. Oh, wait, no, he should be there. Let's see. And, all right, I think we have um, Rob back. Hey, Rob, are you there? Yeah. Hello, Rob? Yes. Hey, there you are. So Rob called back to talk about some of the problems he's had that you asked about, Susan. Yeah. Uh, well, the one thing I wanted to say is that the barrier to entry, uh, you know, you, you classified our service as a business-grade service, which makes it sound in- inaccessible and expensive. We're actually quite the opposite. Or... With Time Warner, our comparable plan with Time Warner is approximately 160 a month for businesses with a three-year contract. We are offering the same speed, actually uh, more, because our up our up speed is, is way faster, um, which is weirdly more important um, for 100 a month with no no contract. Um, and the reason why we're doing that is because we don't want to be Time Warner or Comcast or or any of the or Verizon. There's really no reason for those locked-in contracts for businesses or for people or for the excessive cost of broadband, which I think 
the journal has gone up like some, something like 65 or 50 percent in the last um, uh, since 2004, 2005. Um, from our perspective, uh, and we are backhaul purchasers, uh, we know the cost of wholesale broadband. There's really nothing other than uh, I don't want to use the word greed, but it's you know from the big corporations there's um, there isn't much um, pressure for them to to justify the types of uh, rate increases rate increases that you're seeing across the board. Well, I think you're doing great work, and it's terrific. I'm sure your customers just love it, and I hope that you now. Did you build your own towers or get access to pull rights on existing towers? Uh, we have ex- we, we have both. Um, we we work with a uh, with a landlord in, in, in Brooklyn who has basically owns most of the uh, waterfront, uh, the O'Connell organization. And uh, my brother Eric is a you know he's he's the CEO of the company. He's he's kind of the uh, the brains of the operation. Um, and uh, you know we have spectrum with the FCC. We have we hold licenses. Um, the infrastructure is um, it's fairly complex, but it's you know. There are, uh, I, there are startups like like ours out there um, for people. So I think that you know the duopoly, the monopoly exists, but there are actually alternatives. Yeah. Um, so so how common are we going to see this? I, I'm wondering, like, if we think about those 19 states that you mentioned that Susan, that actually have sort of you know barriers, legal barriers, can projects like this work around those? Yeah, well, those barriers are often directed at cities acting to help their citizens. So if it's possible for a new competitive entrant in the private sector to show up, they wouldn't necessarily affect I that. See. But you couldn't have any partnerships even at all. For many cities, they found it's impossible to do uh, because of the way the laws are written. But, uh, I, you know, I, the caller's absolutely right. We shouldn't say that the situation is absolutely bleak because then people lose hope. There yeah. is hope. There's I know. Like hope. I said, I, I've, I've already talked about how positive you are. <laughs> yes, I'm very positive. Uh, There's definitely hope. But uh, the problem is that we're, we are a big country and we should, have, we should have a system that serves everybody, not just who happens to live in Red Hook, um, but everybody uh, should get a very fast, inexpensive connection in their home. Yeah. So so thanks again, Rob. Um, I saw and signed my uh, name to that petition, Susan, that was out there to have Susan Crawford run the FCC. Um, you don't have the job, at least you don't yet. But what can we expect uh, from the government to step in and, and help solve these bigger philosophical problems with this new uh, appointee that we've been reading about? Well, I'm optimistic about him. Uh, his name is Tom Wheeler, and he is a terrific guy. He's been nominated by the president and has to go through confirmation, which is probably going to take a few months. They have to line up a Republican and get them to go through together. Uh, he's very smart and uh, understands this market deeply. Well, that's because he was very in- involved in it, right? In the past, yes, he was involved with both the Cable Association and the Wireless Association at different points in his career. But he, I think he's been unfairly pigeonholed as a creature of just those industries. He's a guy who doesn't need another job, who's quite independent, um, who can act when he feels it's important, and I am optimistic that he'll do very well. I think uh, he will really dig in, and he will be very serious about uh, attacking these issues. You just said he read your book. Have you had a conversation with him about some of these issues? He's certainly read the book, so I think that's important. Yeah, (laughs) I think that's amazing. (laughs) So, um, 
you know, it, there aren't that many books about telecommunications policy, for God's sake, Ben. It's not that big a deal. Uh, but. Well, <laughs> I mean, I'm curious about, you know, like looking at this as a larger philosophical problem. I mean, it seems yeah. that, you know, when you point out like getting this country completely wired up for the future, mm -hmm. it solves this major problem of equality. And on the other side of the argument is business saying, well, hey, that's not our job. Right. And Google will say this, too. You know, it's not our job to fix this problem that has made uh, the United States into, we risk becoming the Pottersville of the Internet. <laughs> it's not, it's not their <laughs> I'm job moving to, to Seoul. <laughs> Wasn't Seoul amazing? Seoul was amazing, although when I was there, it was brutally cold. It was, yes. I feeling think in my hands as soon as I went outside. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, it's not our problem to fix. Uh, we're pointing out what the that you can actually build fiber in America uh, at a cost in a cost-effective way, and in the long term, fiber is actually cheaper than copper to maintain uh, when things are wet. It it actually just keeps going, and it's going to last a long time, 25 or 50 years. So it's it's a better technology, uh, and other countries are just deciding to do it. In China, every house is going oh, to yeah. have fiber to the home. You know. Um, Amazing. I've got one more call here, okay. and then I want to talk about what we can do. Okay. okay. Here's, let's see. Hello, hello? Hi. Hey, there we go. It's, it's station manager Ken. Hey, Ken. Hey, Benjamin. Hey, Susan. Fascinating discussion. Um, Susan, I wanted to just relate my direct experience in this realm, um, which is with T1 provisioning um, in order to feed the different radio stations we have as well as to feed our Internet connection to various ISPs. And I've been dealing and getting T1s for 10 years, and it's the biggest nightmare. You can't imagine what a nightmare it is. And the reason that it seems so bad to me is that there's, it's, it's so quintessentially American, which is why I guess I'm pessimistic. It's that to simply provision a single T1 circuit, I have to deal with four or five different companies. And, wow. you know, and, and I'm dealing with mergers and, you know, Verizon, you know, bought somebody else's long-distance service. So I'm dealing with the T1 broker, and then I'm dealing with uh, Verizon, and then the, the smaller company that provides the, the last mile. Uh, but then even these companies are always gobbling up each other. So you end up dealing with essentially the departments of four to five different companies to send a signal, you know, like 15 miles away. Uh, well, it's, you know, consumers can relate to this when they deal with banks, too. When you take out a mortgage, it's sold and sold and sold and sold. It's very hard to figure out who you're, who you're dealing with and how you're, if you had to adjust it, what you would do. And that's another industry that's seen massive consolidation and a lot of deregulation. Um, in, it's, it's just terrible that uh, finding reliable connectivity is such a problem for a business. We take electricity for granted. You come home and flip, flip it on and it works. For some reason, we haven't figured out these uh, basic communication lines. Uh, they should be just something you can access, and it's a input to your business without having to fight through six levels of people who don't understand you. So I'm well, sorry that's like, happened to you. That's why again. it seems like a, a country like China that can just have the government cut through the morass of dealing with five different companies' bureaucracies. Yeah. Uh, because a lot of the issues that I deal with are just like technical mismatches. Yeah. Um, well, they're a couple of things that saying that raises for me. I mean, yes, it is easier to build infrastructure in an authoritarian country. It is. Just, <laughs> they just they say, just seem to have that figured out. Yeah, but that you know, I wouldn't want America to be that place. It's just America also built the Hoover Dam and the freeway system, and you know, in our phone system, electrical grid. We we have been in the past capable of doing great things and doing it 
in a standardized way, you know, building the transcontinental railroad and making sure that there was one standard gauge so that it would all fit and work together. That required real leadership. One problem we have in the communications world at this point is that with this romance of the uh, network access providers and our affection for consolidation, I don't think there's been enough attention paid to just having a Mm -hmm. very standard system, especially from a consumer's point of view, that works really well and uh, to a very high level of reliability and customer service. Yeah. Um, All right. Thanks, Ken. Um, So we've got a few minutes left, Susan. What I really want to get end up here is that you're optimistic for a reason. You're seeing some uh, movements spring up around some of these issues. I'm wondering if you could tell us about some of those, especially for this listening audience, which I think is very interested in seeing what they can do to help solve some of these problems. Well, just as we heard from Red Hook, there are a bunch of heroes across the country who are building these networks. And a great site to go to to learn about this is muninetworks.org. You can uh, read the stories and see what cities are doing. I just visited my hometown of um, Santa Monica, and they've got a fantastic fiber network uh, that's drawing businesses there. And so Muni Network's a good place to go. Um, on the political side, we're understaffed when it comes to uh, people in Washington working on these issues, but uh, public knowledge works hard at this, and so does free press. And you can go to their websites and find out what's up and get involved. Um, I am hoping that uh, college students around the country will take up this issue because they really understand it. It's just yeah. like air to them to have a reliable... Uh, you can't watch Game of Thrones on the subway. It's very upsetting. <laughs> right. right, but it's, it's not just entertainment. I know, I know, I know. No, 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 I know. So um, in every congressional district, you should be requiring candidates to answer questions about what they're going to do about fiber access in America as a condition of being elected. We should have it pleasant in every debate. It should be part of every local office. And that's going to take real social involvement uh, by millennials, frankly, to make that happen. Okay. Now, I know you recently taught a class uh, at the Harvard Kennedy School in Roxbury in in Boston with some, you know, working at a municipal level with students, I believe. What what did you, just briefly, what what was this experience? And it seems like, what did you get from that? Well, this class was called Solving Problems Using Technology, and I did it with the mayor's office in the city of Boston and also with uh, design students and policy students and neighborhood organizations in Roxbury. And the cool thing about it was that the students discovered how um, satisfying and interesting it is to work with communities, not as clients. The communities weren't clients. They were co-creators of applications and designs that would help their neighborhood. Like, how do we get more kids? involved in policy making in this city? How do we uh, make sure that kids understand what cultural events are available to them around the city of Boston? How do we have a deeper identity as a community using technology, ways of signage and mapping and showing who we are? Mm. And how do we draw more businesses here? And um, it was a terrific uh, laboratory experiment in iterating, prototyping, being active in communities without waiting for someone to give you permission. So uh, we should be doing this with every major university across the country, working closely with mayors and neighborhood organizations to um, have a sense of agency and autonomy when it comes to the use of technology to help people's lives. Yeah, yeah. And then one last question. It seems that, you know, when when the Internet responds to sort of... uh, uh, 
I'm thinking of like Sopa Pipa or like even like the DMCA protest of, you know, decades ago. It seems like mass action can be fired in direct response to something like that coming out. Whereas the cable industry seem to really move slowly, you know, bit by bit, sort of making these things kind of harder to do. But is there anything on the horizon, any particular flashpoint coming up that you're hoping perhaps might inspire some, some more attention and, and more activism or more collective action? Well, you're right. This does move very slowly, and that makes it They're very tricky. difficult to turn the trigger. But uh, there's something coming up right now. The FCC is thinking about uh, how we tran- make the big transition between non-IP networks and IP networks and what social rules should apply to things that use the Internet protocol. And they're considering all these questions about universal service, serving everybody, reasonable cost. AT&T is pushing this because they want to drop their lines and serve a lot of people uh, with wireless instead of um, aligned to their homes and avoid all regulatory overhang that way. Mm-hmm. I think that um, proceeding, that FCC proceeding, is the moment when we should be directing our attention and saying, why is it that so many small towns in America and so many poor people in America are being left out as we make yeah. this transition? And why is everything so expensive? And what breakdowns in policy have happened to make us uh, dive into this swamp? So that's one. That's coming up in a couple months. Wow. All right. Well, thank you so much. So, Susan, I can't thank you enough for spending the whole hour with us. It was really, it's always great to talk to you, but I, I can't thank you enough for giving us a whole hour of your time. Well, thank you, Benjamin. It was great to talk to you. I really appreciate the chance to be on the show. Yeah. So, Susan Crawford's book is called Captive Audience, the Telecom Industry and Monopoly Power in the New Gilded Age. And uh, we'll post some links to that on the uh, WFMU Too Much Information uh, playlist page. So, thanks again, Susan. I'll see you next time. Okay. See you next time, Ben. Bye. Bye-bye. So thanks again to uh, Susan Crawford for joining us for the whole hour and to Andrea Salenzi for helping me put this together. We're, we're figuring out this technology, folks. We're slowly but surely. Uh, yeah, so uh, thanks again and to Rob for calling in and uh, to Ken. So uh, stay tuned for Nardwar, who's up next, and uh, we'll see you next week.
You're listening to WFMU East Orange, WMFU Mount Hope, in Rockland County at 91.9 FM and online at WFMU.org. Up next, the Nardwar, the Human Serviette Radio Show. Listening to WFMU, and it's time right now for the Nardwar, the Human Serviette Radio Show. Today on the Nardwar, the Human Serviette Radio Show, guest DJ Bill Mullen presents Philip Random's 1111 of the greatest songs in the world probably that you've never heard yes bill mullen curates philip random's giant list he's back bill mullen with part two we talked to him uh, i guess a couple months ago so here we go nardwar to human serviette me versus bill mullen coming up via philip random on the nardwar the human serviette radio show on wfmu Now if you put 
you. I was Bill Mullen when I woke up this morning. I'm assuming nothing has changed. You still are Bill Mullen and Bill Mullen? Since you're Bill Mullen and you've been on an Ardwater Human Serviette radio show before, please move closer to the mic because you have some more information to reiterate to the people. Yes, by me making that allusion, it indicates that Bill has been on an Ardwater Human Serviette radio show before helping coordinate Philip Random's 1,111 Greatest Records You Never Heard. Probably. Please, probably have never heard please explain what happened last time on an Ardwar human serviette radio show and what you're doing today and what exactly is randophonic.blogspot.ca that's a lot to answer to randophonic.blogspot.ca is a website that is the back it's sort of the backup for the radio program that uh, is randophonic that every saturday evening in some part of the world uh, broadcasts. And since November 2011, we have been working through the list, the all vinyl and apocalyptic, as Mr. Random referred to it. 1,111 of the greatest records you probably never heard. And this whole concept was developed because you found some paperwork and are going through Philip Random's notes. You are not Philip Random. Who was Philip Random? Some guy on some island and you found his notes. And now we're playing the songs that he suggested to the listeners out there in Radio Land again. Yeah, basically it's a list of stuff he left really for his daughter. Uh, I, that seemed to be what he was indicating. But he's an old friend. Like, I knew him way back in, like, 1980. We met. We were both cab drivers. So oh. so we kind of, on the north shore of the terminal city, Vancouver. So it goes way back. And, you know, we kind of knew each other off and on for various points in time. And, and anyway, he disappeared uh, right around 9-11, which you can read into what you wish. I think it has nothing to do with it because... Uh, he didn't like crowds, so why would he be in New York City? Anyway, but he did, uh, the, the, the feeling is it had more to do with agricultural activities that are kind of popular on the West Coast. And um, yeah, hasn't been really heard from since, although we've heard a few rumors that he's around, but obviously not wanting to be found. And you have this great document of Philip Random's favorite, greatest records, 1,111 greatest records you never heard. And you were at the Nordwater Human Serviette radio show, I guess a couple months ago, bringing out a bunch of records. And here we are again. How is the countdown going? Because again, this is a countdown. Your radio show is yeah, doing yeah. a countdown. The 1,111 greatest records you never heard. How close are you to getting to number one on your actual countdown? And again, people can access your countdown down Bill Mullen at randophonic p-h-o-n-i-c dot blogspot dot c-a where are you on your countdown uh, as of June uh, 1st we're going to have 38 songs to go which means that June 8th will be the last program so the last about 20 23 songs are going to get played June 8th um, so yeah we're that far we're, we're, we're inside the top 40 all time greatest records you probably haven't already heard in fact we just heard one of them right there that's what the show began with an amazing Steppenwolf tune yeah. not the Steppenwolf tune that I thought you might play the classic Steppenwolf what can you say about that tune amazing so groovy number 391 on the countdown list uh, this is Phil Random here from his notes he, he, he left a pile of vinyl and he also took notes which he left uh, trying to explain what he was up to Malcolm Kale was in my class in grade 7. I guess you could call him a bad kid because he smoked cigarettes, and rumor had it had he'd even gotten drunk a few times. But he was small, quiet, didn't pose much threat, and anyway, we both walked home from school the same way. So we ended up hanging out a fair bit in his big house, which was almost always empty after school. No parents or brothers and sisters around to stop us digging through his dad's playboys, sneaking a beer, cranking the stereo loud... 
But like pretty much every other kid I knew at the time, he locked cool records, maybe a few Beatles albums, some Rolling Stones, CCR, and definitely Steppenwolf, their first album and best, the one with Born to be Wild that stands up best now is Sookie Sookie, funky and strong, and at least as cool as John Kay's Shades. And that's what we heard to begin the Nardwar, the human serviette radio show, Steppenwolf. So here we go. Round two, Nardwar versus Philip Random via Bill Mullen, Philip Random's 1,111 greatest records you probably never heard. What are we moving on to right now? Some plugs. The plugs, uh, uh, the 671 selection on the list. Uh, plugs. Uh, it's a track called Real 10. Um, I'll just read what Mr. Random had to say about it. If I haven't seen Repo Man beginning to end 20 times, I've definitely